This morning in the lesson, we talked a little bit about the human tendency to take even good things that we do, but to mingle them with perhaps pride or to mingle them with a desire for, uh, for the honor and the respect of our peers and other people. And so in doing that, we can end up doing harm even to potentially good things. In fact, I think humans often have a tendency to take very good things and find ways to, to ruin the good thing that we do. Uh, whether it's because of pride or perhaps because of judgmentalism or, or something like that. I've seen, I've seen people who, uh, you know, you, you take Bible study. Bible study can be a wonderful and good thing. There, I, I, would, I like Bible study. I spend a lot of time doing Bible study. I enjoy it. And I think it's a valuable thing that every Christian should engage in the privilege of Bible study. And yet... I have seen people who have grown so much in their Bible study that as soon as they see someone who doesn't have the knowledge that they have, they immediately see that as like a lesser human or a lesser Christian. All of a sudden, they elevate themselves above these people. I mean, I I think it's quite common people who, who say they hold this belief at one point in their life when they're younger, and then they study and they change over time, and now they hold this belief. And I have seen so often, as soon as they hold this belief, they look back at the people who hold the belief that they themselves held. And they look at them as though they're ignorant, or they look at them as though they're foolish, or they don't understand how a person who's honest could... And that happens a lot. I've I've seen, this is something that I find really tragic, people who... As they grew in their knowledge of the Bible, or at least as they changed in their understanding of the Bible, uh, whether or not they grow or not is, you know, up for discussion. But I, I have seen people who've changed in their views, and then they look back at, say, their home congregation, or their parents, or people who initially taught them the gospel, people who loved them and cared for them, and they look back with them with almost nothing but scorn because they don't now have the views that they have. And, and that, to me, is one of the most uh, tragic things to happen in, in what is supposed to be the growth that someone has. So often, they might change in their views, but as soon as you turn against the people who taught you to be honest with Scripture, who taught you to love the Bible, who taught you the, the truth initially, I think you're stepping off course. And, and so my, my point is, Sometimes that's a good thing to grow in your Bible knowledge. I, mean, I think that's a very good thing. To keep studying, to be honest, to go wherever the evidence leads, that's all really good. But as soon as that gets turned into, oh, but who doesn't now know what I know? Or who holds the beliefs that I used to hold? Or who hasn't, uh, you know, isn't as smart as I am when it comes to the Bible? And you start seeing them as lower or lesser Christians, then you've completely missed the purpose of Bible study. The Bible study is not for the purpose of being really smart. Uh, Bible study is for the purpose of transformation into the image of Jesus. And I don't think that's what Jesus did. And I don't think that's what Jesus would do. And so, so can a good thing like Bible study become a dangerous thing? Certainly. Paul even says that. Paul says knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. And the knowledge he's talking about when he says that, it's in the book of 1 Corinthians, some people have a pretty good understanding, it seems, of, uh, of idolatry and the true God and with meat sacrificed to idols, and they have some pretty good answers that they could give about what a Christian can or cannot do. But they have cared more about their correct answers to that question than the burden that that may place on another brother in Christ 
who doesn't quite have that understanding, who maybe still struggles a little bit with concepts about idolatry and thinks, well, maybe I shouldn't be eating this. And they're, they're honest, sincere people and they're grappling. And the people with knowledge look down on them as like, these fools don't understand what I understand. And Paul says, look, you might have knowledge, but all it's done is make you arrogant. I'd much rather you have less knowledge and more love, and that way you could actually solve some of the problems of the church. So, so good things like knowledge in Bible study can potentially have the tendency to turn people into doing some negative things. I've seen it with, uh, with different church ministries and different church functions that were really good things. Certain uh, Bible studies or uh, even Sunday evening service or um, uh, reading the Bible through in a year. You know, I've seen all of these things done by churches that are, I think, excellent ideas and excellent things to do. I'm I'm here on Sunday night, and I like Sunday night service. But I've also seen people who do read their Bible in a year or do go to church on Sunday night then use those very things to look out at all the people who didn't do it, and all of a sudden we create a hierarchy in the church of the super spiritual, the not so spiritual, and the sub-spiritual. And so, like, all of that is they're good things to do, and that's why the church offers them. But we have a tendency to, to take even good things and to make them problematic in some way. Um, and I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he comes to giving to the poor in prayer and fasting. We talked about those three things this morning, and those are all good things to do. Those are acts of righteousness that we should be engaged in. And yet, we can turn them into trying to get praise for those things, or trying to, to see who can fast the longest, or who can offer the better, better prayers, or who is more generous, and, and all of that. And Jesus thinks that that type of competitive spirituality has no place in his kingdom. And so, uh, tonight, we're going to be kind of looking at the idea of how you can turn good things into bad things, and there's a lot of ways you can do it, but we're going to focus a little bit on uh, the idea of pride here this evening. Um, pride is one of those things that can cause us to take a good action and become proud in that action and perhaps take it further than it ought to be taken, or to do it for the wrong motives, or to, uh, to even be dishonest in it so that we can get the the praise rather than uh, actually do the act of righteousness. For example, I mentioned them this morning, but Ananias and Sapphira uh, in the book of Acts, they do a good thing. Here's what's happening in the early church. The early church is very generous. Acts goes a good amount of uh, depth on the incredible sacrificial generosity of the early church. You see it in Acts chapter 2. You see it in Acts chapter, right at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, these incredible acts of generosity. People are not only, uh, you know, like giving to the church collection. uh, They're selling their fields. They're looking at what they have, and they're thinking, okay, I have this, but you know what? I also have this, and it's excess. It's more than I actually need. And so I know of other people who don't even have what they need. So I'll sell my own property. I'll sell my own possessions. I'll sell my own field to make sure that others have what they need. And and the early church became this community where Acts chapter 4 says that there was no one who had need. Like you didn't have It was very common in the ancient world and in in that time, even in, in Jerusalem, for people to go without the basic necessities of life. And in the early church, you actually had a community where that wasn't taking place. 
I mean, if this, is the, if this is a kingdom, which it is, and that's what Jesus calls it, then we have the first kingdom on the face of the earth that had solved the problem of poverty and of, 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 of uh, you know, people dying because they don't have enough because of the radical generosity of the early church. And, and the book of Acts goes on to mention a guy named Joseph. He's later given the nickname of Barnabas, who he's one of those people who sold a field and he gave it to the church so that they could help the poor. And when he did that, uh, apparently people heard about it. I don't think he did it from the wrong motives as, we, as you come to learn more about his character, but it was something that seemed to have spread in the early church about that amount of generosity. And then there's this other couple who hears about it, Ananias and Sapphira. And they begin to think, well, wouldn't it be great if people talked about us like that? Uh, or at least you, you kind of assume those are their motives. I'm making a couple of assumptions here because uh, you see that's the description that's given of Joseph or Barnabas. And then the very next thing you're introduced to is Ananias and Sapphira, who they go and they sell a field also. But they, they want to give some of it. I think, I think there's probably some pure motives in there of wanting to do something good and wanting to, to be a part of this early movement. But at the same time, more than that, they want the praise that comes. And so they actually work up a lie that they're going to tell about how it is that they can give some of the money to the church and keep the rest of it for themselves. But they'll tell the church that they gave all of the money. What is the purpose of a lie like that? The only purpose of telling a lie like that is to, for people to go, oh, wow, you're incredible. And like, like to get the praise and the honor and people to then uh, spread their name as this really generous couple. And so they wanted to get the praise, but, and they even did something good. You know, it's like, not like that was a bad thing to do. They did a good thing, but they did it for completely the wrong motives. And then they lied so that they could get even more uh, uh, honor from this act than was deserved. And you know what? In the ancient world, that was a way that, that you, uh, you know, became honorable in a society. You could maybe, if you had a lot of wealth, you could uh, go to the city and you can have them build a library or something. You can give them, you can donate your money to that. Or, or a gymnasium or a public bathhouse or something like that. But what you would want is then your name to be put on it or something so that your name and your generosity could live on so that people could see this from generation to generation. And, and that was something that was practiced. And maybe they're thinking, hey, maybe we could get something like that going in the church, you know? We can, we'll be really generous, but then our names will live on and and people will know how great we are. Well, as you read the story of Acts chapter 5, that's not how it, how it goes. Um, Ananias is called out by Peter for his lie and he doubles down on it and he ends up losing his life. He falls down dead. And then shortly after that, his wife, who had worked with him in preparation for this lie without knowing what had happened to her husband, she then tells the same story that he did and she dies as well. And it's a really, it's a harsh punishment. Uh, You don't see that type of thing happen a lot, but it kind of actually reminds you of a few stories earlier in the Bible. Uh, It reminds you of like Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu uh, in Leviticus 10 were some of the very first priests. They were sons of Aaron. And uh, Aaron was like the high priest. And then you have four priests, his four sons, become priests also. And after the first worship service led by these priests, two of them die. 
And it's because uh, we're not told exactly explicitly what they did, but they offered some sort of strange fire, unauthorized fire, fire in a way that God hadn't told them to do, uh, that was dishonorable to the worship. And because of that, fire came from the altar and consumed them from the very presence of God. And they died there. And, and I think sometimes, this is a theory that I have, um, maybe that was the first worship service with the priests in ancient Israel. And the reason the punishment was so swift and was so harsh was to set a tone so that people could learn from that point forward that when you approach the presence of God in worship, you do so as though he is genuinely holy. You do so with reverence and maybe even with a measure of of healthy fear, recognizing that you are not doing something small or light or or, uh, meaningless, but you're doing something that is worth of even more importance than your life. Uh, and so approach him with that type of reverence. And then right in Acts chapter 5, like the very earliest uh, days of the early church of Jerusalem, I think you're setting that same kind of tone. If you thought what was happening with ancient Israel was important, what's happening with the church is even more important and worldwide. And so from the very beginning, when you start seeing people bringing those types of sinful attitudes into the church and that type of deception for the purpose of, of getting their own fame and notoriety, God lets you know from the very beginning that that is not going to be something that's a part of his kingdom. And, and it actually says that fear spread throughout the ancient church after this happened, and yet the church continued to grow. Like, word about this went out and people learned a valuable lesson from it. And so I I think that those kind of parallel each other. But notice how in both of those instances, uh, worship and generosity, they took something good, an act of worship, an act of generosity, and they turned it into something bad and swift punishment came. Well, that's, that's uh, the type of thing that we're talking about. And that's what Jesus is saying uh, to be on guard about. Make sure that you don't, when you're offering your prayers or when you're fasting or when you're giving or when you're doing any act of righteousness, when you're doing something good for the kingdom, make sure that it doesn't become motivated by pride or uh, your own uh, desire for, uh, to enrich yourself or something like that. That's one of the, one of the most problematic and, and sickening things for me as a, as a minister is when I see other ministers who, whether it's arrogance or they come to believe their own hype or whatever, they end up focusing more on their own brand or their own egos than it is uh, the gospel itself. And that's something that, I, I mean, when you, when you do something and people are looking at you all the time and people are complimenting you all the time— do, if you're not careful, you can start to believe what people say. And that's a, that is something that no matter what you're doing, you need to be on guard of to make sure that you don't end up falling prey to that. And it happens to ministers. Sometimes I wonder if ministers uh, are, are, if certain types of individuals are drawn to ministry because they like to have uh, that type of authority or, or that type of respect or whatever. And, and that's the type of thing that I don't think anything kills the work of the church, kills a ministry, or kills a soul faster than that type of pride and arrogance. And so in whatever it is you do, Jesus is warning you from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, don't let that be a part of it. Even in something like a prayer, don't let that type of thing become a part of it. Even in an act of generosity, even in something that we would think of as private, like fasting, don't let that type of pride even get an 
inch. Don't give it a foot in the door because it can cause so much damage if it's left unchecked and if it uh, goes on unfettered. Well, what we're going to talk about tonight is in Second uh, Chronicles 26, and we're going to talk about a king who I think let that type of arrogance into his life, and it's really tragic because he seems to be a very impressive king. Like one, of the, one of the most impressive kings Israel had. We're not told uh, an absolute ton about him, but we, uh, we do have some information. He reigned for 52 years, and he's described as someone who did right in the eyes of the Lord, and he was someone who continued to seek God, and he's someone who I, it really seems like his reign was defined by and large as a reign that was truly dedicated to the service of God. His name was Isaiah. He's in Second Chronicles chapter 26. And, uh, and, you know, Israel could have used, or Judah could have used a lot more kings like him. It would have been very good for them to have more kings who truly uh, sought God, more tre- kings who truly did right in the eyes of the Lord. But as he did the right thing, God gave him success. And as soon as he had, or, or not, maybe not as soon as he had success, but the longer that he had success, it grew, he developed a name, he came up with all of these great building plans, he had uh, people making these uh, inventions that, uh, that helped uh, Israel or helped Judah, uh, you know, become uh, uh, pretty advanced with some of their military warfare. Like, all of these things happened. He got a pretty good reputation. And when that happened, all of a sudden... He started to forget the limits of what his kingship was all about. Um, that's, that's a problem that, that kings often have is they get used to being told yes so much. It becomes really, really hard for them to accept a no. Uh, King Saul uh, ran into this problem, uh, you know, and it's actually he, he runs into a pretty similar problem to Isaiah uh, in that he steps beyond the limits of what a king is allowed to do. And he starts doing the work of a priest also. And you would think, well, a king could, you know, he could do whatever he wants. He can do the work of a priest, right? Well, actually, in ancient Israel, no. Uh, you had different rulers, different, like, uh, uh, um, branches of government, I guess you could say. Uh, you had prophets, and you had priests, and you have kings. And the king is an interesting one, because the prophet has a very clear role designated by God as to what the prophet is supposed to be and what the prophet is supposed to do. And the priest also, very clear role designated by God as to what the priest is supposed to do. And the king was supposed to be God. It was like God was supposed to be the one who had that role. If you look at the layout of the, t- the temple or the tabernacle, you have the holy place, and then you have that place that's the most holies or the holy of holies. And in it, you have something called the mercy seat. And that, I think, is, is supposed to be symbolic of the very throne of God in ancient Israel. That's where God dwelled. That's where God ruled as king. And sometimes we're even told he's enthroned above the cherubim because there were these cherubim there. That's supposed to picture the throne of God in heaven in an actual room there in Jerusalem or there at the tabernacle. And what would be so fascinating about that room is that's the throne for the king of of Israel. And yet if you were to look at it, it would be an and then be an empty seat. Like there's no one there. And that's an important reminder that there's no human who can sit on this throne. 
the throne of Israel belongs to the invisible creator of the cosmos, the one who rules not from a room but from heaven above. Like the, the image of the empty seat is a reminder that there's no human even worthy to be there and that only God is the one who uh, can, can truly rule in ancient Israel. So it's a powerful image. And I think that's what the image was supposed to be for ancient Israel. But as the story goes along, they end up saying, okay, that's wonderful, but we'd actually like a real king. And we want him to be a person because all the other nations have them and they make these nations great. And we want to be great like these nations. And so let's, let's get ourselves a real king. And, you know, the, the idea of wanting like a real king when they have the most real and true and good king there could possibly be. They have a king who led them out of Egypt. They have a king who can rule from generation to generation to generation. They would rather have a king who has not led them out of Egypt, a king who did not give them the promised land, a king who is going to grow weak and sick and die. Like, they wanted a frail human king, and not only would they have this king who is going to be nowhere near as good a king as God, he's also going to be more greedy. He's also going to be more proud. He's also going to take all of their uh, wealth for himself. He's going to take their daughters to be wives. And like all of these things are what these kings did. But the people still wanted them. And so they end up having Saul become king. And when Saul becomes king, uh, it, he seems like a pretty decent guy at first. He looks the part of a king. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. And he uh, seems to be someone who has some measure of humility to him. But then as the story unfolds, the more power that he gets the more corruption starts to enter and the more he starts to, as king, not reign in such a way that like people through him will worship God. He ends up kind of trying to take the place of God. He ends up doing things explicitly that God had told him not to do. He ends up becoming the one who's in charge of his own right and wrong. He's the one who, who ends up making his own decisions as to what's best for the kingdom. And he ends up losing his kingdom because of that. Um, the kings, even the kings of ancient Israel, they were supposed to listen to the prophets. Like the kings were not supposed to be the ones who told the prophets what to do. The prophets were the ones who told the kings what to do. The king was not supposed to have more authority than the prophet. And so that's like, there are these uh, stories. One of them uh, is uh, King Ahab. Uh, he has this prophet Micaiah. And then he has all these other prophets who he likes. The reason he doesn't like Micaiah is Micaiah tells him the word of the Lord. And it drives him crazy because he, he, the way he sees it is like, I have all these other prophets who are loyal. And I have this one guy who everything he says, it's tyranny. You know, everything he says is, is treason or it's against me. Why, if, why can't he be loyal like all these other prophets? The other prophets were like just people bowing down to the king. And he liked that. He liked the yes-men prophets. Micaiah, however, he put in prison because he did not like any of the things that he said. That is a king who has completely, wholly, and entirely lost perspective on what his role is. He's supposed to be listening to the prophets because the prophets are telling him the word of God. But if you place yourself above God, then you don't need to listen to that prophet. Just throw him in prison. I'd rather listen to the guys who fear me rather than the guys who fear God. And so that that's, was a common problem that kings had. They were, not, they were supposed to listen to prophets instead of imprison them. And they were supposed to uh, let the worship of Israel and the teaching of Israel be guided and dictated by faithful priests. And yet you have a number of examples, Saul being one of them, where the king takes on for himself the role of the priest. And so as we get to the story of Isaiah, keep some of those things in mind, because we'll see him fall into some of these same types of traps, even though 
he started off so good and so righteous and so faithful. When you look at uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and verse 3, we're told that Isaiah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And then notice verse five through uh, 4 and 5. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done, which, which is, is rare to have a king who does right, especially a couple in a row. But then you get to verse 5. It says, he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Notice that phrase, as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Uh, so that ends up becoming something that, uh, that becomes kind of cyclical and dangerous. Because if you seek God, he prospers you, and that's great. But so often, as soon as God prospers you, you stop seeking God. And when you stop seeking God, he stops prospering you. Uh, This pattern, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's warned about very explicitly for all of Israel. As they're leaving Egypt and about to go into the promised land, remember, they're going into a pretty great land. They're going into a land where they're going to live in cities that they did not build. They're going to be fortified cities. Like, they're going to already have protection. Their crops are going to be better than they've ever been able to experience or enjoy before. They're going to have success. Like, God is giving them the promised land as a gift. And they've spent their lives as slaves or as wanderers in a wilderness. Like, they're finally going to have what they've been longing for for so long. What God warns them about, it as soon as you have things that are so good, don't fall into the trap of as long as we're in the wilderness and we're in need, then we cry out to God. I mean, that's kind of what the manna was for. Like, if you remember the laws about the manna, God gave them food every day. And they were not supposed to collect it. They were supposed to eat that day's worth. And then every night they went to bed, they had no food for the next day. That's a terrifying thought. To have to go through day after day. If you're a parent and you have children, you have to provide for them. And every night you're putting your kids to sleep and they have nothing to eat the next day. What are you doing? They're supposed to go to bed trusting in the provision of God that he will come through again for me. And when that happens day after day after day for 40 years, that's supposed to be teaching them trust and reliance upon God. They didn't have a lot, but they were given what they needed. And they could trust in God to provide what they needed. Now when they go into the promised land, they're not relying on manna every day. They're able to store up. They're able to have crops. They're able to have plentiful harvest and bountiful harvest. They're able to, to st- like, and what he warned them about is as soon as you have enough, as soon as you become satisfied, don't become proud. Don't start to think, wow, I'm really good at taking care of my fields. Uh, I'm really good at, at, at investing. I'm really good at all of these things. And you start to be, grow to have a large ego. And then you know what you need for food tomorrow? You don't need God to provide manna. You just need your own crops that you've provided for yourself. You need your own warehouses. You need your own storehouse. And all of a sudden, you're relying on yourself. And as you do that day after day, you can easily forget about the God who made it all possible. And he says, don't do it. Don't, don't fall into the trap of becoming proud and then forgetting God. In the book of Hosea, 
chapter 13, that same cycle is recorded again, and uh, it, it's recorded in a lot. I th- I'm pretty certain Hosea is intentionally reflecting on Deuteronomy 8 when he says it. But Hosea chapter 13, just listen to these words. God says, I knew or I cared for you in the wilderness and in the land of drought. Like God loved them and cared for them in the wilderness back when they had nothing. He says, but as soon as they had pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. This is, it's, it's that same pattern. It's like God cared for them and loved them and gave them what they needed. He provided for them and protected them. But as soon as they thought they could do it on their own, then they became satisfied with everything they had. And as soon as they became satisfied, they became proud. And as soon as they became proud, they forgot. So back to Isaiah. Isaiah reigns 52 years, and as long as he seeks God, God prospers him. In verses 6 through 15 of 2 Chronicles 26, we get a pretty impressive resume of the things that he accomplished. Um, we were told about some of his successful wars and battles that he has against the Philistines and how he, you know, verse 6, he went out and warred against the Philistines and he broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabneth and the wall of Ashdod and he built cities in the areas of Ashdod and among the Philistines. So what were some of his successes? Well, he tore down Philistine walls and structures and he's able to build cities. And like, that's pretty impressive. Oh, those are th- I've never done those things. You know? but, but Isaiah did. He's a pretty, pretty impressive king so far. Um, it says in verse 7, God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived at Gerbaal in the Muenites. Uh, and you find out that God is giving him success against all of these people. Um, as a matter of fact, when you get to verse 8... It says the Ammonites also gave tribute to Isaiah. So now you have a foreign people, and they are uh, in fear of this king, and they begin to pay tribute to him, as though he's the great king who's in charge of things. And it says in verse 8, And his fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. So even, like, extending to the borders of Egypt, people are hearing about, whoa, new king in Judah, and this guy's impressive. He, I wouldn't mess with him. The Ammonites are paying tribute to him. The Philistines have fallen before him, he, but he's built up their cities. He's a gracious king. He's a powerful king, but he's the king you don't want to mess with, too. Like, that, that type of fame is spreading about him. And then he begins building projects in Jerusalem, verse 9. Moreover, Isaiah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the corner buttress, and he fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness, and he hewed many cisterns, for he had much livestock. And so he builds in the city, then he goes out and he builds, and uh, he builds towers in the wilderness, and he starts making that land habitable, and he has a lot of livestock. He's really being blessed, so he's very wealthy, and he's able to turn even the wilderness area into plentiful, bountiful land. Uh, you come to find out at the end of verse 10 that he also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. He, he ends up growing to love the rich land that God has given them, and he's able to make it useful and fruitful. Uh, this is someone who, you can see his success is in a lot of different areas, whether it's military, whether it's construction and building, whether it is uh, uh, irrigation, whether it is agriculture, like all of these different areas of life for ancient Judah, he's doing a wonderful job. Why? Well, back to verse 5, which, which kind of introduces the whole thing. As long as he sought the Lord... God prospered him. 
He's seeking God, and God is helping give him success in all of these areas. Um, Moreover, verse 11, Isaiah had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions according to the number of their muster, prepared by, and then it mentions a bunch of names of of the officers. It gives you a a rundown of how many people there are, and uh, he has uh, an elite army of 307,500 who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. So he's also able to build up a strong military, way stronger than when he took things over. Um, Not only that, verses 14 and 15 talks about some of the the, the military technology that he's able to develop. It says, Moreover, Isaiah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones, uh, to where now the military not only has a large number, they're trained fighters, but they have great uh, weapons and they have great protection. In verse 5, in Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purposes of shooting arrows and great stones. So now he's actually building things that can shoot arrows and stones. Like, you wouldn't want to mess with Jerusalem while this man is king. Hence, and notice the end of verse 15, his fame spread afar, and he was marvelously helped until he was strong. So, He ends up having fame, success, reigns for 52 years. Everything he does seems to flourish, and God has helped him every step of the way. And then once you get to verse 16, that tragic pattern begins to reveal itself. And it says, But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. So it happened. The problem with saying prayers for the praise of men. It's the problem with giving to the poor so that people will respect you. It's the problem with fasting for honor. It's the problem with doing even good things for the purpose of getting the praise of men. Once that pride starts to grow, and once it, once it is planted and takes root and begins to grow and begins to, to, to flourish in your life, then all of a sudden, even the good things that you do become marred by that sin. And here we have a king who everything he does goes the right way. Everything he's put his hands to has been successful. So now he looks at the temple and he starts thinking, what can I do there? If you get to verse 16, it says, For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. It might not sound like a big deal. You know, he's, he's going to the place of worship to worship. Uh, God has been with him. He has been with God. Everything that he's done has flourished. Surely if anyone, he's done more than any of these priests have. Surely if anyone could go and, and offer something that would be of, of, of praise and offer something that would be of value to God, it's him, right? He's God's guy. Like he's been a great king. And, for so, and all of a sudden, the pride that he has causes him to forget yeah, you're a king. That doesn't mean you can do anything you want to do. That doesn't mean you can usurp the role of a priest. That doesn't mean that you can forget about what God says about worship. That doesn't mean you can forget about the regulations of the temple. Like You still, even as great a king as you are, you're not above the word of God. And you still have to listen. He goes in there to offer incense. And the priest, verse 17, then Azariah the priest 
entered after him and with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. Uh, so when you think of priests, don't, don't be tempted to think like just old guy hunched over with a beard wearing a, a robe or something. Like the, they have some strong, valiant priests, 80 of them that surround the king. This, what an interesting conflict that's about to happen here. The king, who has been successful in, like, the whole nation has flourished under his reign for 50 years or however long. Like, this king has now entered the temple, and he's doing something the priests know are wrong. There could have been a temptation on the part of the priests to say, I'm not going to fight this one. Uh, he outranks me. I'm just going to take a back seat. But no, the high priest, along with these uh, 80 other priests, they oppose him. And in verse 18, Isaiah the king, uh, they, say, they say to him, it is not for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. So they just tell him flatly, this is actually what the law says. And if you, you think you're going to get honor by doing all of these things, as soon as you do this, you have stepped beyond what God has given you permission to do. There will be no honor that comes from it. Now, a humble king, he might open up his Bible and say, oh, you're right. I'm so sorry. I should not be doing this. You know, the kings are actually supposed to do that. They, they were supposed to make for themselves a copy of the law that they read regularly so that they would remember constantly this idea that they are not supposed to be above the word of God. They, they should still be following his law like everyone else. But rather than doing what the priest says, rather than doing what Moses says, rather than doing what the Lord has said, verse, 20, uh, verse 19, but Isaiah with censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. He got told no. And I don't think that's happened to him very much. Everything he's done has been right. It's been successful. And now he has some priest telling him no? Who do you think you are? He's, he becomes enraged with the priests. And as that happens, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests, they looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. And so what happens is the king gets a reminder of who is actually king in Israel, who actually made Israel or Judah prosper during this time. And it wasn't actually him. It was only him so far as he sought God. It was God who was giving success to the land. It was God who gave success to the building projects. It was God who made the, the wilderness uh, able to flourish. It was God who gave them a strong military. King Isaiah had begun to think that it was him the whole time. I mean, he's been king. He's more successful than most other kings. He started to get a pretty big head about that. And this is a way of him rem remembering that even though that throne or that mercy seat in the Holy of Holies may look empty, it most certainly is not. God is invisible, but is alive and is very real. And just because you have had success, that was a success that was given to you by the true king of ancient Israel, of Israel. And so it was an important reminder for Isaiah. And Isaiah, uh, I think, 
probably he's sitting there, he's yelling at the priest, he's holding, and then all of a sudden he has the leprosy. And the leprosy is actually something that makes one unclean, so he's not supposed to be at the temple at all. And so the priests are trying to get him out of there as soon as, as, like, as quickly as possible. And I like how it says that they were hurrying him out, and he himself also hastened to get out. Uh, I think he was starting to realize, oh, I've, I've made a mistake here. And he gets out, but then, verse 21, we come to find out that King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now, we're we're not told during that time, like, what exactly was going on in his heart, if he repented or whatever. I think maybe he did. I think maybe, actually, that's the very thing he needed, more so than anything else, was, okay— I was a king. I was a great king. My fame was, was beyond the borders of Israel and Judah, even to Egypt. And, and everyone respected me and everyone feared me. But now I'm alone. I'm away from everyone else. I'm struggling with leprosy. I can't. I have, like, my son is the one making decisions for me now. And like he lost all of that glory. Perhaps that's exactly what he needed in order to remember what his life was supposed to be about all along. Maybe, maybe the most important thing in the world isn't the fame and the glory and the pride and all of that. Maybe even in the most humble circumstances, that's where you can remember why you were created and who you were supposed to be. Maybe losing everything was exactly the gift that God gave him to help him see what life was all about. Um, you know, we're, we're not told, again, exactly uh, everything that he did. We are, I mean, his, his description um, at the beginning is that he did right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. That seems to be a summary. So I, th- I think he's probably remembered for the good that he did rather than that foolish mistake at the end. But you do also see in verse 23, So Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave which belonged to the kings, for they said, he is a leper. And Jotham, his son, became king in his place. So he was also remembered for as being a leper. Um, And so you could see how pride mingled with greatness become part of his memory from that point forward. And hopefully you can see why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, from the get-go— wants his disciples, if you're going to do things for the kingdom, great, do them, pray, give to the poor, uh, uh, fast, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, but don't try to receive the honor from men for the sake of your own pride. Instead, let the good that they see lead them to glorify your Father who's in heaven, because that's who this whole thing is about. And so I think there's a lot of lessons in the Bible about that, but I think that they are lessons that we could learn. And if, if we can help anyone here, um, maybe you look at your life and you see that pride has become a part of, of your decision-making, become a part of your walk with God, become a part of who you are. Pride is dangerous and difficult to get rid of. But as a community of believers, we would love to help anyone here uh, overcome sins that are becoming a part of your life. And if you have the need, please let it be known. And come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.